Welcome to the podcast, everyone. It's Andre here from Mental Health, and I'm here with uh, Dr. Krisha Canvin, Dr. Ian Keller, and Dr. Catherine Berzins, who are all from the Compare project. So BCT Compare, we're talking about this today. Um, and we're going to start with Krisha. So um, tell us a bit about your part of this project, Krisha. You were basically doing an evidence synthesis looking at lots of different interventions, about 100 interventions I think you found? 150. 150, okay. Um, looking at how to reduce restrictive practices in adult acute mental health settings. So what did you find? Mm-hmm. What's the kind of state of the evidence in this area at the moment? Um, so that's right. Well, I mean, essentially what we set out to do was to try and paint a picture of what's already out there and what's been done um, to try to reduce re- restrictive practices, but also what's been evaluated so far. And um, as you said, we, we found 150 separate interventions. Um, and, you know, they're all very variable. They, they, have, um, they all have very different procedures. They combine lots of different procedures, so training and sensory rooms and review and debriefing and... Um, and you know unfortunately um, we're left with some confusion really because um, there's no clear answers from the evidence and um, a lot of the reporting is inconsistent and and incomplete and that's always going to happen but what it means for researchers and more importantly, I think, for practitioners, is that we don't know what works, if anything. Um, Because people tend to throw everything at the problem, um, we don't know which procedures might be the ones that are working to reduce restrictive practices. So that's a real problem. Um, And the way that we hope that we'd be able to overcome that particular problem and that variation is by using the BCT taxonomy to try and find a way of um, identifying themes across the different interventions to, to try and identify really the active components. Yeah, so I guess normally in a health setting we would try and um, think about what works, we would try and find lots of randomised controlled trials and pull them all together in a meta-analysis and you haven't been able to do this because there aren't no. that many randomised controlled trials and they're really different anyway in terms Absolutely. of what they're, what they're measuring. Exactly. You know, they, um, they're all looking at different types of restrictive interventions, um, they're measuring different outcomes from the interventions, you know, so they might range from... Um, outcomes for for patients, patient injury or staff injury. Um, Obviously, they measure the um, incidence uh, and the duration of restraints, or it could be seclusion, or it could be mechanical restraints specifically. You know, they're all doing something slightly different. So, you know, there is no sort of easy way to combine those findings to, 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 as you say, do a meta-analysis. And is it fair to say that most of the interventions in the review are focusing on patients rather than staff? Because it, it strikes me that the behaviour change that we're, we're looking for here is a kind of behaviour change of everyone involved in this process. It's not quite as clear-cut as that. It's more that um, there seems to be a bit more of an emphasis on 
wanting to address what's quite often described as challenging behaviour by patients without doing the flip side, which is looking at perhaps the things that lead staff to use these practices. Um, also, although the, there is some of that in there, you know, it, it really feels like the emphasis is, is sort of tilted, as you say, towards looking at patient behaviour and, um, you know, looking to uh, prevent incidents of violence or distress where, where patients are acting out and, and so on, to prevent those from happening, but putting that um, onus on patients to, to learn techniques to, to manage those things, rather than looking at um, purely staff behaviour, which, I mean, it, it needs to be a balance, obviously. Yeah. So, Ian, tell us a bit about this behaviour change taxonomy. How are you hoping to use this approach to improve what we know in this field? Okay, so uh, my background is um, in usually in health behaviour change uh, for preventative behaviours for individuals, and I've been involved in lots of trials around that. And historically, uh, what had happened in that area is that, and I, I'll use the example of me medication adherence, which is an area I've done lots of work, um, Practitioners would develop interventions and then evaluate them on a, either a pill-taking or a clinical outcome. And uh, when you try and synthesize that evidence, say in a systematic review or in a meta-analysis, meta what you would end up saying is, we don't know why what works works and why we don't know why what doesn't work doesn't work. And so uh, then, and I'm sorry for keep using the example of medication adherence, and uh, that's just kind of my background, um, We've done interventions that have measured outcomes that we know are predictive of medication adherence. But then what you then find is that you know things are changes like knowledge and self-efficacy are important for changing that behaviour, but you don't know what particular bits of the intervention were important. So this taxonomy that's been developed over many years and it's work that's been led by Susan Meekie at UCL but with a, a large international team and hundreds and hundreds of uh, stakeholders involved in inputting uh, to it and uh, many different methods used to develop it has come up with a taxonomy, a 93-item taxonomy that describes different techniques that can be used to change behaviour, so individual professional behaviour. Um, and it's part of a large framework and the framework... Um, uh, suggests that we need to kind of look at the context of a particular behaviour that's, that's important for an outcome, that we understand the processes that drive that specific behaviour related to that outcome, and that then we understand which techniques can be used to change that behaviour and what mechanisms of action drive it. So on this project, what we've done is we've looked at different techniques that have been used in interventions to reduce restrictive practices. Now, because we've used that taxonomy and it's part of a larger framework, we can relate those outcomes to other areas where behaviour change techniques have been used to change professional practice. So that's why we've used this taxonomy, it's because it plugs into a wider framework that allows us to compare across lots of settings. So, you know, I'm involved in a project at the moment used uh, that we're, we're looking at um, how uh, medication errors can be reduced in patients with heart failures at, transition, at, at, at care transition points. 
Um, there are lots and lots of studies that have been done changing professional behaviour that uh, look at these techniques and relate them to established mechanisms of action, of change. And so with this project, we can then say, OK, well, these techniques have been used and there isn't enough literature in our particular area to be sure whether these techniques are the right ones, but we can relate them to other times these techniques have been used amongst similar staff or in similar context and say, OK, in those areas where there was enough literature, we can see these techniques worked and these ones didn't. Does that mean that we're likely, you know, that people in this area are likely doing the right thing, or is it likely that they're doing something that's unlikely to lead to change in outcome? So tell us, Catherine, if I'm a ward manager and I'm thinking, how do we do this? So what do you, we don't know, do we, how we do this? At this point, no. in Compare, we don't know the answer to that question. So why don't we know the answer to that question, and what do you think we can do to get a closer answer? Well, I think the, the reason why we don't know the answer to the question goes back to what Prisha was saying in the, the diversity of approaches and outcomes and um, you know, the way that studies have been, the context in which interventions have been implemented. I think what we can do with this study, though, is impose a common language across those interventions. So despite that kind of underlying complexity, what we can do is look at the behaviour change techniques used in the different interventions and say well, actually, there's huge similarities here. Um, so we know that, you know, the most common uh, category of behaviour change techniques used in interventions is that of goals and planning, uh, which, you know, is no surprise, really. Um, but when we break that down, we can see that, you know, many interventions use a kind of take a problem-solving approach. From that problem-solving, they develop ac action plans, they set goals, they then assess whether they're meeting those goals and, you know, uh, change their action planning, uh, you know, in response to that. So we can see that, that that's such a hugely common feature across interventions. Um, we also know that, um, you know, and anybody who knows anything about uh, reducing restrictive practices, um, training is always used. You know, it's, it's hugely common. There's hardly any interventions. I think it's probably nearly 90% of interventions use some sort of training or instruction to the staff. Um, so we know that that's you know that that's a common feature across all the interventions. And but within training, there are very different behaviour change techniques used. So there can be instruction on you know how to verbally de-escalate situations. There can be uh, information about the uh, harms done by restraint and seclusion to individual service users. Um, the, and, and that can be communicated in different ways. So, you know, one thing that we identify is that quite a few training interventions these days use service user testimony to bring that to life. So that, that's much more meaningful to a group of staff than somebody standing there saying, by the way, restraint's really horrible. So, you know, it's, it's unpicking these kind of techniques that are used, and they might be more important um, than others. So in, having a service user testimony might be more important in effective training than telling somebody some nice words to use in verbal de-escalation. So I think that you know, what, what we get from applying the taxonomy is the ability to look at that common ground and almost provide people with a menu of different options that they could use in future interventions. What about the kind of really upstream stuff? This is a question for all of you. Because it, it strikes me that you know, mental health 
in this country at the moment isn't in a particularly good state. Um, it's really hard to work in the mental health system. And so the culture in mental health inpatient units, it's a difficult place to work. And that doesn't really provide a environment in which the reduction of restrictive practices is, is easy to do. Um, are we not just, you know, it's just like mental health in general, isn't it? If we kind of solve poverty and unemployment and social exclusion, we're going to solve mental illness for a lot of people. Is it the same for restrictive practices, do you think? I think it's bound to have an effect, and it's, it would be naive not to think that a poorly staffed ward with temporary staff, you know, who change every shift, is going to be as effective uh, an environment to implement this kind of intervention as a well-resourced um, service. So I think, you know, it's naive to, um, you know, to do that. But I think that perhaps some of the issues that come out of this are what are the most important aspects you know within that context so we know that we're you know we're dealing with a context that's fragmented and under-resourced but I suppose that still doesn't mean that some things are more effective than others within that particular context yeah and yeah. and the you know the austerity the lack of resources you describe are common across healthcare provision and so because we're using the behaviour change technique taxonomy, we can compare this literature to other patient safety literatures that have also applied um, behaviour change technique taxonomy and understand how you know, errors or failures in other, in other settings for other outcomes have been um, mitigated and l take that learning and apply it to this area. So I think, you know, it's often the case that high-stress, low-resource environments place demands on staff that lead to errors. But men mental health settings aren't the only place where that occurs. And so whilst this approach um, might be at risk of saying, well, these are the ways workers have failed, um, I think we wouldn't be advocating that approach and uh, this isn't about pointing the finger. Um, it's, you know, we do have to recognise that the, um, the context that people are working in is incredibly demanding. Yeah. It's a really difficult area to research and it's a really important area. I'm, I'm really conscious that you've done this so systematically and carefully and thank you for explaining it to, to everyone who's listening. Um, we're going to be reporting all afternoon from this event. The hashtag is BCT Compare. So tweet us if you've got any questions or any comments. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.